Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of 2 Corinthians. We'll be discussing why God allows bad things to happen to us. So if you'll open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us in prayer? Father in heaven, I'm just so encouraged today. I just love this group and thank you for the ability for all of us to gather again together. We're here because we want to learn, not only learn the revelations that you've given us in your book, in the Bible, but we also want to learn how to apply it in our lives to help make us more Christ-like and help us be the light in this very dark culture that we find ourselves in. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit open our hearts and minds to your word today as we continue our study of 2 Corinthians. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this group and the ability to gather together. We also thank you for those who will be listening to this recording later. Just help it to touch all of our hearts and help it continue to change us as we all progress through the sanctification process. Father, I ask that you speak through me, not my words, but your words. I don't ever want to lead anyone astray. And also just speak through those who will speak up so that we can all learn from one another. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in 2 Corinthians. We're getting towards the end now. We're in chapter 12. And if you recall, as I finished up chapter 11 last time, kind of the second half of chapter 11, I had mentioned to you that Paul was now going to explain four credentials of a true apostle. And I mentioned those four credentials. One was the apostle's experience of suffering. Second was sympathy, the sympathy that they have for others. Third was the way that they were very submissive and were guided by the Holy Spirit and submitted to Jesus Christ. And then the fourth one was supernatural. As we closed out chapter 11, we addressed the first three. And here as we open chapter 12, Paul is going to describe the supernatural. And so let me just start out in chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. And I'm going to come back, just keep that not profitable off to the side for a minute. I'm going to come back and address that in just a minute. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. So let me back up a little bit here. First of all, this man that Paul says, I know a man in Christ, this is actually Paul telling about himself, okay? And I'll explain as we go why Paul is speaking this way and not saying this happened to me. It's kind of interesting. He says this happened 14 years ago, and he's never spoken about this before. He's never written about it. The reason that he is talking this way and also says it's not profitable is because he had this vision that he's already started talking about. We're going to dig into a little bit. Paul is saying that because his vision, he had this vision from the Lord and it can't be verified. And since it can't be verified, it's not profitable because if he goes and talks about it, well, he can't prove that it happened. And so it doesn't profit anybody. And the other reason that he's talking about it this way, rather than it being about himself, is he wants to remain humble. He doesn't want people saying, okay, I'm going to share this with you, but, you know, I want to continue to have humility. I don't want you to think because this happened to me that I think I'm all really special. 
Okay, so that's kind of the background. That's why he's speaking this language like this. I know a man in Christ. It's actually himself. And we'll see when we get to verse seven that it is himself. Okay, so that's just a little background. And you see, he says he doesn't know whether it was an out-of-body experience, meaning it was a vision, or if he was caught up into the third heaven. Let me explain that to you. In Paul's day, the language they used, the first heaven was really just the blue sky above that you look at. That was the first heaven. And then the second heaven was where you see the stars. All right. And the third heaven was where God lived. The third heaven is where God is. So he's at least telling us that he was caught up into the realm where God is. And he doesn't know if it was just a vision or if he was actually transported there you know, that he was actually there. He doesn't know. And it's possible. I have no scripture for this, but it may be that this could have even happened when you read in Acts 14, 19. Remember when we studied Acts, when Paul was stoned and left for dead? I mean, that might have been when it happened. I'm purely speculating, okay? Who knows? In any event, Paul doesn't know if this is a vision or if he was actually transported to heaven. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I don't know, but let me share this experience with you. Verse 3, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So part of the reason he hasn't ever talked about this since it happened 14 years ago is the things he heard It was probably in a language unlike anything of this earth. And Paul knew that he was not to tell us what he heard. It says, which a man is not permitted to speak. So he can't tell us exactly what he heard, but he knows he was caught up to paradise. Now, what is this paradise? Keep your finger right here. Just go over to Luke, Luke 23, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel, Luke 23. And you'll remember this. This is when Jesus is on the cross and the two criminals are hanging on crosses on each side of him and everybody's throwing insults at him and hurling abuse at him. And we'll pick up in verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal answered, rebuking the first criminal, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, talking about Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And as he was saying this, he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So this is talking about heaven. This is where paradise is mentioned again. So this is where Jesus ascended to. And this is a little bit of a diversion, but as a reminder to those of you who wonder about baptism, you can see this guy didn't jump off the cross and go get baptized. There's no record of that. I don't think that happened. I think he died on the cross. And so Jesus said, you will be with me in heaven. And so baptism is not a requirement like some denominations profess in order to go to heaven. We see it right here. Now, it is commanded to us, and Jesus commands us to get baptized. It's place your faith in Jesus Christ, 
and then go get baptized. And you don't see any infants getting baptized or sprinkled with water anywhere in the Bible. You can look, you won't find it. The way it is supposed to work is you place your faith, you have the mental capacity to place your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you're commanded to go get baptized. Baptism, though, is not a requirement for salvation, as we see right here in Luke. I just wanted to point that out. But it is something, it's an outward expression of the inward faith that we have, and it's to be obedient. We do it because Jesus told us to go do it. And so just go do it. If you're a Christian and you have not been submersed in baptism, that's what baptism means, by the way. It means to be submerged. It does not mean sprinkle. Then if you're a Christian and you haven't done that, just do what Jesus told you to do. Don't say why or don't say, you know, this is crazy. I was already sprinkled as it. He says, go get baptized. Just go do it. Okay, just be obedient. So enough of that. Just wanted to make that point. Okay, let's go back over to 2 Corinthians. So Paul is saying because his vision can't be verified, it's not beneficial, and it can lead to pride. And that's probably why he never mentioned it before, even though it happened 14 years ago. But he wanted to remain humble about it, and so he describes it in the third person. And God may have given, again, I'm speculating, God may have given Paul this glimpse of heaven knowing what Paul was going to have to endure, all the suffering that Paul goes through that we've read about. Perhaps Jesus gave Paul this glimpse of heaven so that he could endure this suffering knowing what awaited him. That's a possibility. Again, my pure speculation. Okay, so let's continue on. And the following verses that we're going to read now, verses 5 through about 11, I love this part of this chapter. Because here is where Paul is going to address why bad things happen to good people. A lot of people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why do bad things happen to Christians? How can a loving God allow these bad things to happen to us in our life? And this is where Paul is going to address that. I love this section because I think about this when I'm going through my own trials and tribulations. A lot of times I go, why, why? And yet you look at Paul's life, nothing but trials and tribulations that he went through. I mean, it was continual. And you never hear Paul complain. You never hear him say, this isn't fair. Why God? Why me? He just says, hey, if this is what God wants me to go through right now or whatever I'm doing, okay, I'm shackled to some prison guards. Let me share the gospel with you. That's how Paul lived his life. What a model for us. And I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not good at this at all. So what he's going to explain here is, first of all, we're all fallen sinners, okay? That's clear. And as fallen sinners, we're all going to go through tough times. Let me show you a couple of verses on that, and then I'm going to explain the reasons, at least some of the reasons, why God allows these tough times for us. First, let me turn us to John 16, 33. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 16, 33. And it says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is telling us just because we become Christians, we should expect tough times. We should expect tribulation. And Paul's going to give us some of the reasons why in just a minute. Another verse I want to show you, keep going to the right. Let's look at Romans 3.10. So Romans, just keep going past Acts, and then you'll get to Romans 
and we're looking for Romans 3.10. And that verse says, There is none righteous, not even one. Okay? So this is clearly saying that we're all sinful. None of us is righteous. Nobody is. If you think you're going to get to heaven just because you were a little better than everyone else, this verse is clearly teaching we are all sinners. If you've sinned just one sin, then you're guilty of all, is what the Bible says. So we're all sinful. We should expect tribulation, even as Christians. And the last one I want to show you is 2 Timothy. So go back over to 1 Corinthians and then just keep going to the right. You'll find it. It's before Hebrews. And I want to take a look at 2 Timothy 3.12. And that says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right? There's not a maybe. So we should just expect it. We should expect to have difficult times. And so now Paul is going to explain at least some of the reasons God allows us to go through these tough times and trials and tribulations in our life. He's going to give us five reasons for this. The first is to reveal our spiritual condition. And we're going to see that in verses 5 and 6. Let me look at that first, beginning with verse 5. On behalf of such a man, remember he's talking about himself, Paul himself, who had given him this vision or this experience. On behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weakness. So Paul, again, is saying, I want to remain humble. I'm going to boast in the Lord. I'm not boasting in myself. He's saying, I had nothing to do with it. I'm being humble about it. There wasn't anything that I deserved to have this experience, but I did. Verse 6, for if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul, he's not like the false teachers who have been accusing Paul of all kinds of things that we've been talking about as we studied First and Second Corinthians. He's not speaking foolishness. He speaks the truth. And he doesn't want to take any credit for this vision that he had or this experience that he had. He's making it clear it was from God. But because it couldn't be proved, he hasn't talked about it before. It happened 14 years ago. Paul wanted to be judged as a true apostle by the way he lived his life and the way he conducted his ministry. And so what he's talking about here is this first reason for these tough times. And remember, Paul's going through a tough time right now. He had set up the church in Corinth, and when he left... People started following these false teachers who were adding all kinds of things to the gospel and saying Paul didn't care about them. Paul only cared about himself. Paul didn't take any of the collection to live on because he didn't want to be tied to the Corinthians. He didn't love them. He didn't care about them. So he wouldn't even take any of the collection for himself like most pastors did. They accused Paul of all kinds of things, and it broke his heart. And so he's trying to bring these followers back to Christ, and he's being humble about it. But remember, his heart's broken to see this happen. And so why is God doing this? One of the reasons is to show Paul his spiritual condition. And look, Paul's going through really tough times, and look at his spiritual condition. He's not saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen? I mean, I set up this church. You mean I got to come back and like almost start all over again? Wouldn't it be better if I went and planted another church? Or why is this happening? This isn't fair. You never hear Paul saying that. And that's the condition of his spiritual condition. 
How many people do we see when really tough times, Christians or professed Christians, something really bad happens, and what do they say? Like they'll have somebody in their family die. This is when I see it a lot. Or get really sick, and they'll say, a loving God wouldn't allow that to happen. There must not be a God. And they walk away. I'll tell you, some of those people maybe never had saving faith. And as soon as tough times come, hey, I'm out. I'm out. Nope, I'm out. You know? And so it does show us, and God uses these in a way, we're going to get to it, to not only show us our spiritual condition, but to show us we've got to depend on God. And that's what Paul is doing. He's depending on God. So the second reason is to humble us. God uses these tough times to humble us. And so we don't get prideful like Paul is talking about. And so let's take a look at verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, in other words, to keep me humble, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So this is this humility. Paul was given some type of, it's not clear, commentators are all over the place, was this some type of a moral sin or temptation that Paul struggled with throughout his life? Is that what this thorn was in his flesh, that he was continually tempted by something? Or was it a physical impairment? And we know Paul had a physical impairment. You can go look at Galatians, I think it's 6.11. Let me just look over there real quick. It's just the next book over. 6.11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So Paul had some type of eyesight problem. Maybe that was the thorn. We know the false teachers were saying Paul wasn't eloquent. Maybe he had some type of speech impediment. Don't know. But there was something that really bothered Paul, and he describes it as a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he knows why it's there. It's to keep him humble. That was the purpose of it. That's one of the reasons God puts us through our trials, is to humble us and realize we can't rely on ourselves. That's our culture. Our culture is self-reliant, self-made man. What Paul is saying is when we're going through tough times, it's to show us we are not in control. We are not in control. We've got to trust and rely on Jesus Christ. The next reason is to draw us closer to God. All right. And so let's see what happens. Verse eight. This is where this is pointed out concerning this, this affliction. He entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me is what Paul says. So he prayed to God three times, please take this affliction away from me. Please take it away from me. But Paul prayed the way we should, but your will be done. We're going to see that in a minute. So we should pray to the Lord, I need help in this trial. And I love the story. This is one of my favorite stories, and I've raised this story so many times with you all. Let's just go over there and look at it. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 2 Samuel 12. Go over to the Old Testament. If you'll go to Psalms and Proverbs, keep going left a number of books, and you'll get to 2 Samuel 12. And this is the story of where David, you remember King David, he was supposed to be on the battlefield. Instead, he was at his house. He wasn't on the battlefield. He looked over, and on the roof, there's this beautiful woman, Bathsheba. She's out on her roof, and he goes, wow, that's a pretty good-looking woman. 
So he has Bathsheba brought over to him, and long story short, they have a relationship. They have sex outside of marriage. Now David wants to cover it up. So Bathsheba's husband is Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. So he first has Uriah brought back from the battlefield and sets him up to, you know, hey, go spend time with your wife, hoping that now he comes off the battlefield, he'll go have sex with his wife, and that'll cover up the pregnancy here. And Uriah the Hittite refuses to do that. He tries to get him drunk, so he'll do it. He still won't do it. So David sends him back to the battlefield, and he actually positions him in a place to get killed. So he basically murders him. All right, so then David is confronted by Nathan. We see in chapter 12, verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan tells a story that infuriates David. That's basically analogous to what David did. And we see in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man that Nathan described in this story. And he says, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. So Nathan's saying, that story that I just told you, it's really about you. That's what you did. And we see David immediately confesses, feels terrible about it. Nathan says, thus says the Lord of God of Israel. It's I who anointed you king over Israel. It's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and to Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. So let's keep going. And we see in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed that you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David, therefore, inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. So David starts praying to God, please save this child. He's sick, just born, very ill. David's fasting. It says, verse 17, And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat with them. All right? So David is in fasting. He is in prayer to God, but God doesn't say yes to him. Okay? So here's another unanswered. Well, it was answered, but not the way David wanted. Just like Paul's prayer was not answered the way Paul wanted. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? So his servants didn't want to tell David the child had died. Verse 19, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? 
While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Here's my favorite part. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So for me, as a parent of a special needs child that I'm not sure she has the mental capacity in order to actually understand her profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I don't know what she's able to understand. She speaks of Jesus, but I don't know. But to me, I think this says, here's an infant, again, not baptized, nothing here about sprinkling of baptism, But David, who God has said is a man after God's own heart, David is saying, I will see this child when I get to heaven. This is from the Bible. And so to me, that's telling me that when children die before they're old enough to understand how to place their faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe it's people with mental impairments who lack mental capacity, they are like children. Matthew 18.3 says, you need to be like these little children helpless and dependent rather than having self-pride and what have you. And you can also look at Matthew 19, 14. Anyway, I know I spent some time on that, but that scripture gives me peace. And anybody that you know that loses a small child or an infant, somebody that doesn't have mental capacity to actually place their faith in Jesus Christ, I think that verse is there to give us some comfort. Okay, so let me go back over to 2 Corinthians. And so we've seen the first three reasons, one, to reveal our spiritual conditions. These are the reasons God allows these things to happen to us. Number two, to humble us. Number three, to draw us closer to God. Number four is to display God's grace and perhaps draw others to Jesus Christ as they see the peace that we have in our own life as Christians as we deal with this difficulty that we're going through. That we're going to see in verse 9 and in verse 10, 9 and 10 together. The fifth reason is to perfect his power. It shows the power of Jesus Christ and it helps transform us. So verse 9. This is what the Lord's answer was to Paul's prayer. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for the power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, this is Paul saying, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with the weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul is saying, look, this is the way God answered my prayer. He basically said, no, I'm not going to remove this thorn in your flesh, whatever that is. And he's not removing it because the pain that that thorn produced was very productive. It kept Paul from having pride and it kept Paul humble. And so God, through his grace, he gives us what we need in order to endure the trials that we have to go through. Remember, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Just flip a few pages back over to the left when we were over there. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So he doesn't even put so much temptation. There could be more temptation and more difficulty than we even endure. There's a governor on it. And we only are put through what God knows we're able to go through. And then when it's a temptation, he says, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. 
So even when we have temptations to sin, there's an off-ramp. I like to call it the exit ramp. It's always there if we'll just look for it and ask the Holy Spirit to put us on the exit ramp before we sin, before we fall into temptation. But here we see Paul is totally dependent on the Lord, and he says, in my weakness, that's when I'm strong. Because when I'm weak, that's when I know I can't rely on myself. I have to rely on God. I want to show you one other verse. Flip all the way to the back. It's in James. So if you go all the way to the back, and it's before the epistles of John and Peter. And let's look at James 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfected and complete, lacking in nothing. And so these trials that God, these difficult times that God puts us through, they really are there because God loves us and he wants to use them in these various ways. This causes me to reflect. I know many of you have known me for many, many years and know the story. Some of you are new and don't know, but my special needs daughter, she was actually born totally normal. All right. And as a result of a medical accident that happened when she was two months of age, She's left with mental impairments and physical disabilities because of all the drugs they put her on to help revive her when she was without oxygen for an extended period of time. When that happened, I was very, very angry at God. I did not lose my faith, but I was angry. But I prayed every day. And when I look back on that, I am so thankful that God used that in the way he did because it totally transformed my life. I was so into myself. I was so, it was all about me. I was self-dependent. I was a Christian and thought I was living a Christian life, but I didn't have humility. I didn't have empathy for anyone. I couldn't have even found empathy in my toolbox. And now I get great joy from caring for others. I didn't even have that before. It's clearly the Holy Spirit. And he used that to show me I was not in control. And I needed to trust God and trust God's plan, not my plan. I planned for everything. I mean, I had a plan for my daughter all the way through college and married and grandkids, you know, when she was two months old. I already had it planned out. And while it's a different plan than, you know, I still do. There's times I don't fully understand it. There's times I start saying, gosh, what if, what if Lindley, you know, would have gone to college or what if Lindley would have gotten married and I'd maybe have some grandkids now or, you know, and then I realize I'm just being selfish. I'm thinking of me. God's got this. It's his plan. I don't fully understand it, but I trust him. I encourage you, Chris and I uh, did a sermon on this at his church a while back, and the video of it is on my website. If you go on LarryO'Donnell.com, click on the video section, and it says, Why God? And Chris and I talk about this very topic and you might find it of interest, or someone you know who's struggling with, why God? You know, why God do you allow these bad things to happen? You might just send them the link to the video. It might be helpful to them. Okay, so that is one of my favorite parts of this chapter 12, but let's move on. There's still some good stuff here, and we'll close out this chapter. So I'm in verse 11. 
I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. Again, your translation may even say super apostles. That's what they call themselves, these false teachers. Uh, they call themselves super apostles. He says, even though I'm nobody, he's being sarcastic calling them this. He doesn't think they're super apostles, but that's what they call themselves. And they said Paul was inferior. And he's saying, I'm fine with being inferior because it's not me anyway. It's all about God and what God is doing working in and through me. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performing among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Again, he's talking about the supernatural. You remember the 12 apostles and Paul, they were all called by Jesus and sent by him. And they all had special power and authority as apostles to be able to do these miraculous things. They were all able to do that. While I'm not denying that there aren't miracles that still happen today, it's not like what was happening during the time of the apostles because there's no need now. The New Testament has been written, but that was needed then in order to authenticate their authority, to show that they were true apostles and representatives of Jesus Christ. I can show you a couple of verses. Given the time, let me just refer those to you. Acts 1, 21 through 26, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Galatians 1, 11 through 12, and Matthew 19, verse 28, and verses following. So eventually the need for this process really passed away because now we have the written word, we have God's word, and it was just being developed by the apostles or through the apostles, I should say, and other writers of scripture. So, and what's amazing is eventually all the apostles, except for John, were martyred. John was exiled, so he didn't finish his life out in a great way. So they all went through, these were the apostles, and look what they had to go through. And look how their lives ended, yet always dependent upon God. Verse 13, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Okay, so here's where he's addressing the fact that he wasn't a burden on them. He did not take money from them like many pastors. And a lot of the false teachers were saying, because Paul doesn't take any money from you all to live, then it's because he doesn't want to have an obligation or be tied to you. He doesn't love you. And so that's what he's answering here. He says, forgive me this wrong. And again, he's being sarcastic here. He just didn't want to take money from them because whenever he planted a church, he didn't take money from that church because he didn't want them in that new church saying Paul was only doing this for the money. Paul wanted to show he was doing it because he loved them. Verse 14, here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you. So this was going to be his third missionary trip. And I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So these are just small children in their walk. And Paul saying, I don't want to be a burden to you. Verse 15, and I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you the more, and I am to be loved the less. He's saying that the Corinthians really aren't showing love to Paul. Verse 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. 
Again, he's being sarcastic. The false teachers were saying this, and they were also accusing him as they had this collection that they were going to take to Jerusalem. The false teachers were also saying that Paul really was skimming off of that. He was skimming money off of that collection that was supposed to go to Jerusalem. Verse 17, Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? He sent Titus and another fellow Christian, someone who represented the church in Corinth, to actually put together this collection for Jerusalem. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So he's not defending himself. He really didn't care what they thought about him because he knew he was going to be judged by God. For them to be saying that there were three people, Paul being one of them, uh, actually there were three people outside of Paul who assisted Paul in the collection. You can read about that in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, that they would all collude them with Paul and then defraud everyone. That's just ludicrous. I mean, there's no way that that was happening. And Paul is saying that he just wants them to grow in their faith. That's all he's really wanting them to do. What he wanted was he wanted their spiritual growth. Let me show you 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5. Just flip over to 1 Corinthians just a few pages back. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. He didn't care what people said about him. He knew his judgment was going to come from God, and he was very comfortable with that. Verse 20, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to not be what I wish, and I may be found by you to be not what you wish that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. So Paul was concerned that when he returned for this third trip, that they would not have repented by then. And that was going to just break Paul's heart if he found them that way. He loved them and he wanted to help them grow in their faith and grow in their relationship with the Lord. And actually, the primary role of the pastor is to help mature the congregation and to see them mature in their faith. And that's what Paul was trying to do. And then as they become more like Jesus, then they can help build the kingdom as well. Let me show you, go over to two books over to the right, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And it says, and he gave this talk about the Lord, and he gave some apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So that's how it works. It isn't the preacher's job to be the evangelist to the world. It isn't the preacher's job to teach the world the scripture. It isn't the preacher's job to disciple everybody. It's the preacher's job to equip all of us to go and do that. Do you see that? It's to equip the saints, which are the believers. Remember, Paul always calls believers. He calls us all saints. It's hard to get used to that. For their work of service. Do you see that? To build up the body of Christ. That's our job. The pastor equips us, and then we're the ones to go do the work. 
So many people think, no, 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 that verse over there in Matthew 28 that says, go make disciples, that, that's the pastor's job. It doesn't say pastor. It's the command to all of us. That's what we're all called to do. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented by the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. That's where Paul's heart was. He had a broken heart for people who were following these false teachers, who were living in a state of sin and not acknowledging it as sin. It's kind of hard, and we see this in our culture today all the time. It's hard to repent from a sin or a practice or a lifestyle that you don't even acknowledge is sinful. I had a young couple approach me last week, and I have this happen quite often. They wanted me to marry them. And I said, well, I'm very honored, but before you ask me, I'm going to let you withdraw that request. But here's what you need to do if you want me to marry you, because I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you I want to do it the way God said. And if you truly want God at the center of your relationship, which he invented marriage, he gave it to us as a gift, then let me ask you this question. Are you all living together? Yes. Well, if you want me to marry you and you want to have a true Christian marriage, you're going to have to figure out a way to not live together until you get married. You can go away and think about that. And I haven't heard back from him. And that happens a lot. You know, I I just sort of say, I'm not judging you. That's not a sin I have. I got lots of other sins. I'm not judging you. But if you truly want God to bless this marriage, don't you want to go into it in the way that he designed? Don't you want to begin this new relationship with God at the center and be obedient and go about the process the way God designed? He'll forgive you from what's happened in the past. Just ask for his forgiveness. But if you go into it not even recognizing it as a sin, I mean, you're starting out already just like, no, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to God. No, well, okay. Good luck with that. It's hard enough to be married. I've got my 40th anniversary coming up. It ain't easy, but it's the best gift that God has given me other than his son. I haven't always done it right, but I at least want to help others start out on the right foot. At least let's go into this trying to be obedient. You know, let's do what Jesus and God told us to do. So let me just sum up here, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think church leaders and all of us as Christians, we've got to hold people accountable and That's what we should do with brothers and sisters. Do it in a loving way, but at least say, hey, can I pray for you? Or you realize what you're doing? That's not what God would want you to do. And I'm not judging you. I'm just trying to help you and help others be obedient to their faith. And then we're to repent and we're to correct our sins. And we can only do that when we acknowledge it as sin and the Holy Spirit helps us through our difficulties. And we can then continue our sanctification process But when we don't even repent from our sins or acknowledge our sins, even if we're doing the same thing over and over again, it's kind of hard for the Holy Spirit to work in our life. We're impeding the ability of the Holy Spirit to work when we have unconfessed sin. And I heard the neatest thing just recently. There may be sins in our life, and this isn't an excuse. Don't get me wrong. Don't use this as a reason that, well, I got this sin and so I don't need to address it. But we may be struggling with some of the same sins over and over and over again, just like whatever this temptation or whatever this affliction that Paul dealt with throughout his life. God may be using that to keep us humble. You know, there may be some sin that we just fight against, fight with, fight with all the time. Every time we do it, the Holy Spirit convicts us and we say, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this again. 
but in a way that humbles us and says, you know what? You're a sinner. You are in need of a Savior. And man, it just reminds me every time I do the same thing over and over, it's like, I am a messed up dude. I need a Savior. Maybe that's why we keep dealing with some of the same stuff. But that doesn't mean we ought to just give up and say, okay, I'm going to die with this. We got to be obedient and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. But I can assure you, as soon as you get through that one, there'll be the next thing that we need to deal with. And finally, we all have many trials in our life. I just think that's part of our sanctification process. And I just thank God all the time that he at least turned the worst trial that I have ever been through in my life. And I pray that none of you ever have to experience anything that comes close to that. Uh, The shipwreck with my daughter. He even used that terrible situation to totally transform me. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. Don't get me wrong. I am still messed up. But it totally changed me from what I was before. I have new things to deal with now. So with that, let me open it up. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. Kind of interesting, Larry. I don't know if you heard that thing about uh, sin in this room, but the concept is on the board right there behind you. Look at that. It sure is. The circle of sin for you listening in in the classroom that we're doing our Bible study in this morning has a whole circle of sin on the whiteboard behind us. It says, serve God, forget God, sin, crisis, turn to God, God rescues, and then we start all over again. Serve God, forget God, sin, crisis, turn to God, God rescues. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) It's a summary of the Old Testament and our life today. That's excellent. Larry, it occurred to me, you know, not only does our weakness and our afflictions keep us humble, but it so occurs to me as you're teaching this lesson that for us to be attracted to the world as evangelists, we would have to be humble. There's nothing more of a turnoff than arrogance. And I think maybe that's part of the formula. I think that's a good point. When you see, and we've all seen them, some of them on television, when you see fellow Christians who are not humble and who it truly is all about themselves and their focus is perhaps more on money and monetary things rather than having this peace and understanding the grace of the Lord, it is a turnoff. That's not somebody that you really want to follow. Very good point. I think one of the biggest challenges a lot of us face is, you know, when we're talking to other people is, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? At the start of this class today, I could have stammered through maybe one. I've never seen it broken down into these pieces before. And I have a fear of being asked that question or presented with that dilemma. And so this gives a lot of clarity, and particularly that verse in James, the purpose of trials. It does develop our strength. It does develop our perseverance. I get asked that a lot because people will call me. I'm going through a tough time and, you know, explain it. A lot of times their question is, I'm really struggling with why God would allow this to happen. And that's a perfect time for all of us. We've all had difficult times in our lives. And I'd ask each of us to really think about what's the hardest trial that you've been through in your life. And then how did God use that to change you? I guarantee you he did if you allowed him to. And so then it's real easy when you get asked that question, you go, Sometimes it's hard to understand exactly why God is doing what he's doing, but I trust him. And let me tell you what I went through and how it changed me. I tell my story and I say, he's up to something through this and you've just got to trust him. It may be to go through these five reasons and there may be others. 
Just about every really difficult trial that I've been through, I can point to one of these five that that's clearly, and sometimes multiple of those five. For me, it was initially first one through three probably, and then now it's used in a way, and I'm not saying this, please, this is going to come across like I'm not being humble. I'm just, I'm using this as to share and to teach, so don't take it the wrong way, but I think clearly people now see what my wife and I still have to endure with our daughter, and yet the peace that we have about ourselves, not always, but for the most part, and people say, how do you do that? And there you go. I've got the opportunity to share now to help them grow in their faith. And so sometimes it might not be for us. It might be for others. It might be whatever God's putting you through. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with all the people who are looking at you. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.